Okay, well, welcome to the show, Sean. Your new book is called The Serengeti Rules. The theme of your book is kind of the central role of regulation for a variety of life forms. I think I'd like to start by having you tell us why regulation is so important in the natural world. Well, every chemical reaction in some ways has to be regulated or it can run out of control. Cells divide, but there are limits to how far they can divide. If if there weren't limits, you know, just one dividing bacterium in two days could pretty much make enough bacteria to be the weight of the earth. So regulation is operating all the time. And if we just zero in inside our bodies, there's thousands and thousands of substances being made all the time, every minute. Some of those substances are being made in response to, for example, what we eat or the time of day that it is. Um, and so events are being regulated and we're, we're doing other things to replenish, for example, cells that we lose from our gut or red blood cells that get old and things like this. And all these things have to you know, work to keep life stable. So living things need both ways to react to change, to sort of bring it back to stable. And they also, they sort of have to do this both internally and with respect to, to external change. And that's been the story for, you know, three and a half billion years of life on earth. And so this happens at, as you've been saying, a more molecular level, but also an ecological level. Absolutely. So the, the number of everything is, is, is regulated in some ways, determined in some way. So sort of think about a lot of scales of nature. So the number of molecules of particular things circulating in your bloodstream, the number of, you know, cells in your kidney, um, the, your body size is regulated. Uh, and then above that, the number of different kinds of creatures, the number of lions on the Serengeti, you know, the number of sardines in the sea, all these things are influenced by regulation. Hmm. And are those principles at the micro and macro level, the same principles? I think in your book, you, you say there's a common underlying logic of life. How similar is that across scales? The logic is, is there. I think maybe a, a familiar concept might be something like feedback. So while the mechanism, the exact mechanism isn't the same, the overall sort of operational behavior is similar. Let me give you an example. So in, say, making a substance in your body, let's say cholesterol. So we can make our own cholesterol, and we need that to, to build cells, or we can scavenge it from food. But, you know, you don't want to have too much cholesterol, and there's problems if you have too little cholesterol. So there's essentially feedback mechanisms there that cells sense when they need cholesterol from the outside or when they have to make more, okay? Feedback mechanisms. Well, in the same sort of feedback way, when a population, let's say, of wildebeest is living on the savanna, you know, that population is limited in a couple of ways. When food gets scarce, there's going to be an increase in mortality, and that's going to sort of cap the population. But as the wildebeest die off, there's then more food available per capita, and that's going to support the population. And it works kind of like a little thermostat, which is when populations get small, then resources are generally in excess, and they rebound back up. And when populations get large and resources are scarcer, um, they level off or drop. And so that feedback is, you know, is operating at, at both scales. Too much cholesterol, you decrease synthesis of it. Not enough cholesterol, you increase synthesis of it. Same thing with the wildebeest. So uh, mechanisms are different, but the logic is the same. And one reason 
you say that it's really important to understand the logic of regulation is to help us intervene when it goes wrong. How does a, an issue with regulation cause maybe a disease state? Insulin is probably the easiest example. When your pancreas doesn't make enough insulin, you've got a big problem in regulating your, your, your blood sugar. So what we do is we, if, if you're not making enough insulin, is, you know, we provide it as a, as a drug and you inject it. So when you know, you know that, that regulation's not working right, you can you know, replace or restore what's missing. Um, in the case of something like cholesterol, which we know too much cholesterol really increases the risk of heart attacks, you can exploit the way cholesterol is regulated, and this is exactly what statins do. They are a very tar- molecule that targets the cholesterol synthesizing machinery, and it ends up pulling more cholesterol out of the bloodstream and dropping that, that circulating so-called bad cholesterol. And that, that insight came directly from understanding the logic of cholesterol regulation and led to you know, a drug that's impacted you know, tens of millions of people across the world. And I assume cancer is probably another example of dysregulation. Perfect. It's right on. It's 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 uh, probably the the premier example, which is cancers are are uncontrolled cell growth. It's cells multiplying out of control, and normally there are feedback mechanisms that limit you know the number of white cells in your bloodstream or the number of lung cells in your lung, etc. But when these systems break down, usually essentially a, a mutation that breaks some component that's in the, the regulatory loop, um, cells can grow out of control. Now, these days, for a good number of cancers, we're able to identify where those broken components are and target drugs to try to essentially selectively kill the cancer cells and not the normal cells of the body. We learned so much about the principles that many different levels of regulation can teach us about. So how do we translate this understanding of, like, say, regulation and maybe even dysregulation, you know, help humanity in small scales and large scales? One of the reasons I structured the book the way I did is to show how that connection between understanding how regulation works, you know, pays off in medicine. There's just great examples in things like, you know, statins and in in cancer drugs and sort of to gather our confidence that, you know, by understanding how things work, we'd really have a chance to do some things. And then the book, the second half of the book is really about regulation on a larger scale out in in nature and and in ecosystems. And I try to give some examples of both the pioneering work that really often revealed surprising ways in which things were connected in, in the natural world. And some other examples of how some things that were not in good shape, some ailing ecosystems have been repaired and, and resurrected. And so it, it's, it's a different scale. So I, I, one of my favorite examples is, it is to understand that this regulation in nature is operating on, on a scale of, a, of you know, even a, a blade of rice you know, in, in Asia is a little mini Serengeti with predators and herbivores and, and uh, you know, feeding on the plant. And that these basic principles that, which operate all the way up to the scale of, you know, lions and sharks also operate on, on a blade of rice. And so when farmers using pesticides inadvertently kill off spiders, it turns out they give a chance for these pests, these plant hoppers to just explode in numbers and devastate their fields. And so on the, you know, it's, an, it's a really important thing because rice is an enormously important crop, but really what's going on there is, is that something almost invisible to the human eye that 
predatory interaction between spiders and, and these plant hoppers, that's not the sort of thing we first think about. When we see a bug on a plant, we're like, kill it. And so we put on, pe- we put on pesticides, but it turns out that's exactly the wrong impulse mm-hmm. uh, in terms of keeping your field healthy for the, for the long run. That's interesting. So last week we had a microbiologist come on our show to talk about the Zika virus. Yeah. And she mentioned one of the strategies to combat it is to kill off entire mosquito populations. Do we understand regulation enough or is it modeled well enough to know how that would affect an ecosystem? Well, we can think we know enough and sometimes nature will surprise us. I would imagine with respect to Zika, because we know that that is being carried by a mosquito that is not native to South America anyway, that recently made its way over from Hmm. Africa, the sense is that it's not yet so integrated into the ecosystem that there would be in a sort of chain reactions um, to its disappearance. So it's an invasive mosquito essentially that's carrying the Zika virus. And in other cases, and there's just lots of examples you know, where we've tried to control something and it didn't work out, probably in the most notorious case I can think of is the cane toad in Australia, where in the 1930s in Queensland, uh, the idea was to control some beetles that were devastating sugarcane fields in Queensland, brought in these toads from, from Central and South America, and uh, they did nothing to the beetles because actually they lived in different parts of the field of the, of the plant, and uh, the toads are completely toxic and therefore were not controlled by Australian predators and started killing off snakes and frogs and small mammals and have now for 80 years marched across the eastern half of Australia causing havoc. So, you know, you would say in 1930, we didn't know enough to run that experiment and we're paying the price, you know, um, 80 years later in in lots of painful ways. Um, So, you know, sometimes, sometimes we're wrong. You talked a little bit about the fact that you focused on the pioneering work of scientists in these fields. Who would you say pioneered our modern understanding of physiological regulation? That'd be Walter Cannon. So Walter Cannon was a the physician at Harvard. He did early work on the response to stress and fear in animals and in humans. And then basic uh, responses of the body like hunger and thirst and in the 19-teens, while he was in his mid-40s and World War I broke out, he was reading a lot about the problem of shock in soldiers on World War I battlefields. And he understood from some of his animal studies that there were a set of symptoms there of blood pressure declining. And um, he thought there, there must be, we must understand this, the, response, the physiological phenomena of shock to do something about it. So he volunteered. He was a father of five. He didn't have to go to World War I, but he volunteered along with a bunch of other physicians and served in the shock wards on the front lines. And he observed that one of the manifestations of shock, a bad indicator, was that the patient's blood pH, the acidity of the blood, was dropping, becoming more acidic. And if it dropped to a certain point, it generally was an indicator the patient wouldn't recover. And he thought, well, if it's becoming more acidic, let's push it back the other way with some sodium bicarbonate. And he saw dramatic, virtually instantaneous results on these patients. And so that real life experience plus his animal research 
gave him just a deeper appreciation for how the body maintained many things in sort of a narrow range. pH, the level of certain salts in our blood like calcium or magnesium. And he thought that, you know, the job of the physician was when the body was overwhelmed by something was to push things back in the, you know, in the right direction. And he came up with this word called homeostasis, the idea that the body is trying to keep stable all of these different components to maintaining an internal stable chemistry inside the body. And that, that idea of homeostasis instantly stuck and has been a, you know, a key idea in physiology and medicine ever since. I get the sense that we have more appreciation for the homeostasis of our body, and I think a lot of people accept that, than we do for ecology. Would you, would you say that's true, that we don't really... Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're, we're fooled. I mean, in, in some ways, we know when our, our own individual bodies are just a little bit not right, right? We, a slight fever, right? If our, if our body temperature goes to 99.5, we can tell that, right? Half a degree, we can tell that. We're like, oh, I don't feel well today. I'm a little bit under the weather, right? So we're really tuned in to whether all our organs and everything are kind of, you know, working well. But when we look at outside and you see, you know, let's say you see the woods or a local park and you're like, well, that's green. That's nice. It, it, it looks nice. But we don't have the eyes to look deeper and go, well, wait a second. Is that community of creatures? Well, is there even a community of creatures there? So the looks can be deceiving about the world. We can look at the ocean and go, you know, that's a beautiful blue ocean. But if you look beneath the surface, you'd be saying, hmm, you know, how are things? And, you know, at one point, people thought, for example, the oceans, you know, were inexhaustible in terms of the supply of fish or things like that. And we've certainly learned that that's not true. So we're not very perceptive about the health of things around us. We can be fooled by things looking okay to our eye, but they're really not as productive as they could be if we manage them in different ways. So a lot of your previous work is based around evolution and gene regulation development. How did you get interested in like uh, thinking about ecology? Well, the truth of that is that um, I, I guess I would say I, I was inspired you know, a long time ago, I was really interested in understanding how the animal kingdom was made and how it evolved. And over the decades, as I've, you know, watched the same headlines you have, you know, become aware that, you know, even some of the most protected places on the planet are showing stress from sources, you know, far away. And it was a conflict for me to just, you know, I, I love laboratory work. I love what myself and my colleagues have been doing for a long time. But I knew sort of in my heart that the animal kingdom's not in such great shape and, and not getting better. And I thought, I need to understand more about this situation. And because I have certain um, outlets available to me for education and things like that, that, you know, maybe I can pitch in, maybe I can help the conversation. And uh, I've met a lot of ecologists over the last few years and, you know, understood you know, an increasing amount of ecology, but I was, I was starting from a very low baseline. <laughs> and I felt that, you know, what I certainly felt, of course, what they were doing was, was very important, but generally not too well known by my own tribe of, of molecular biologists, let alone by the public. So I, I thought I would, you know, try to shine a light on some of the major discoveries and the major pioneers. And they all felt that things seemed to be falling under this, you know, larger umbrella of sort of how life has regulated it at different levels. So I, I felt comfortable in thinking and talking about regulation 
it was, you know, for me, new and challenging to talk about the regulation of, of wildebeest and sea otters as opposed to, you know, genes and proteins. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I thought there would be something integrative and a, a way of making all of biology a little more manageable and a little more connected if we could connect across these scales. And that, that was part of the ambition of the book. Great. Did you see these regulatory principles in your own work as a molecular biologist? Yeah, I, I, I ran across the, uh, yeah, virtually all of them. So I, I felt pretty comfortable with, with regulatory logic because a lot of the puzzles that we had been working on in my lab over the years um, required understanding all of, as I'll just use the sports analogy, all the players in the game, all the links in the chain. If there was a chain of events that led to some output, a, a lot of the challenge of biology has been to find all of the members of those chains and figure out how they interacted with each other. And so I had that experience again and again, and the interactions are different. Some things negatively regulate something else, some things positively regulate something else. There's a lot of sort of strings of logic of where one negative regulator regulates another negative regulator, and that means that the first thing is actually influencing the third thing in a positive way, right? You know, two negatives make a positive. Um, so I, then, you know, I, this is second nature to me from decades of work. And then when I looked at this ecological work and saw that same kind of logic out there that a sea otter negatively regulates sea urchins, which negatively regulate kelp, and therefore the presence of sea otters allows kelp to grow, I thought, wow, I've seen this logic before. And it's usually those kinds of the, the sort of non-intuitive connections, the idea that, you know, something affects something else that affects something else that you'd think would be completely unrelated or unconnected. You're, those are the moments of sort of revelation of going, oh, wait a second. Now I see the logic here. Now I see how the system works. And I had those same sort of feelings reading and learning about these ecological discoveries as I had in uh, my own work. And so there were some nice aha moments and made me feel like the world was a little smaller. So all of this work is about, under, first, I guess, we understand how things are regulated, and then we move forward, and then we try to uh, regulate things and then, uh, you know, fix problems by understanding how these problems work. So how, what about humanity? There are many problems with, like, say, like, understanding how humanity can be regulated in this sort of ecological context. So what are your thoughts on, like, how we can move forward with uh, what we learn from your books? Well, you mean uh, you mean human numbers? You you mm -hmm. want me to regulate human populations, or you want me just to regulate human behavior? Oh, behavior. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'd say behavior. I think that when we understand that nature is highly regulated and that we're dependent upon these chains of of regulation, these sort of chain reactions, that the number of you know shellfish that we can harvest in a given place is connected to a whole lot of other events in the ocean, for example then we can appreciate that if we want these resources to be around, we have to regulate ourselves. We have to be careful how many of some species we harvest, the age, the gender of what we take, how fast those populations are able to replenish themselves. So we just need scientifically guided management. Good science plus good management gives us a good chance. And really throughout history, it's when one of those two things is missing, the things don't go too well. And I'm not saying that, you know, the science is always perfect. The science is continuously going on. You, you need, you know, the input of, of more and more science, but you need the commitment to good management based on that science. It does happen, despite headlines are biased towards bad things. You know, whether it's, I mean, 
let's take something like the Flint, Michigan water crisis. I mean, there's a, there's going to be case studies there for decades of, you know, how we, how things were botched. But I can tell you that as I looked into things like the management of, of U.S. Ocean, ocean fisheries around the U, in, in U.S. coastal waters, you know, we've recognized this for decades that healthy stocks require active management and that stocks that have been depleted have been rebuilt. There are still stocks that need to be rebuilt. We're not in a perfect situation, but there's enough experience and enough recognition that for both economic reasons, commercial fisheries, as well as food security, that good management matters. We have to have regulation. So regulation is, you know, in kind of this political season, it's got a little bit of a dirty word, but regulation, you know, exists throughout nature and we're relying on nature to provide for us. So we have to have a regulatory mindset. We have to understand that humans have to regulate their own actions if these things are going to be around and be able to sustain us. So your book is called The Serengeti Rules, and you've kind of discussed them. I'm interested in whether those rules apply to humans. Are we an exception? And how come we have to consciously regulate ourselves, whereas (laughs) other creatures are just naturally regulated by their ecosystem? Well, there's a couple of ways we get regulated, whether we like it or not. A disease is a form of regulation. It's a form of regulation in nature, and we're still susceptible to disease. And we have new diseases that emerge, and we have old diseases that have been around for a long time. Um, the other is food supply. I mean, just like an animal on the Serengeti, you know, we are limited by food. And if you get into a situation where there's not enough food, obviously we're facing, you know, we can face famine, and we can face, you know, from drought, you know, a, sh- a shortage of water, and and you know, people can die, and they can die in large numbers. So, you know, we are biological beings. We we do have the fundamentally the same need of of food and water and the same risk of disease. Now, our cultural evolution has been developed methods of making food that provides food for a small number of people, provide food for a large population. You know, we have obviously water treatment systems and lots of ways of, of obtaining and delivering water. And we have medicine for, for fighting off disease. You know, we have tried to find these ways to control nature, to have more reliable food production and to have security for viruses. But we are, we, we still are have this vulnerability. And as our population has reached 7.4 billion, you know, various parts of the world are feeling the stresses of inadequate food supply, of depletion of fisheries, of inadequate freshwater supply, of epidemic or pandemic. So it's a patchy picture of, you know, where in the world, you know, the the crises are. But I think the sense of the ecological and scientific community is that those crises are going to become more numerous and more intense as population grows and resources get scarcer. A good chunk of the world depends upon the oceans for their protein. Well, we know that there's a lot of fisheries that are in crisis. As, As a species, you know, we, we will fend off most of these things, but that doesn't mean there will not be a lot of suffering in a variable intensity a, a, across the world as large populations run headlong to the, into the limits of, you know, food and water or the breakout of new diseases. Great. Thank you, Sean. I think we will wrap up here. Is there any last thing you'd like to say about your book or the topic of regulation? Well, I want to throw, can I throw one out and you just see whether or not it, it works? I think, Please. I think, 
that as we're up against, you know, we, we see a lot of negative headlines about what's going on in the world or even what's going on in our country. But there are a lot of success stories out there. The one thing we know about sort of how nature works is nature is incredibly resilient. And if given a chance, that chance generally means easing off the pressure we put on it. Um, the the rebound can be remarkable. We've seen this in fisheries again and again. You, I saw this most spectacularly myself in a place called Gorongosa in Mozambique, where a place that had been devastated by 20 years of civil war and poaching is roaring back now that it's under some protection. And you know, we understand this kind of from sort of fundamental biological principles. And, and there's where the hope is. The hope is that with a little bit of self-control, nature has a lot of power to restore what was there. That's what we have to find. We have to find that balance between our demands and nature's ability to supply. Great. Thank you so much, Sean, for being on our show today. Thanks for having me. Once again, Anjan and I have been speaking with Sean Carroll about his new book, The Serengeti Rules. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Grox Science Show. For more from us, visit our blog at grox.net or find us on Facebook or iTunes. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.